Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This is our sixth episode in our study of Revelation and the politics of Jesus. In this episode, we're going to get a chance to look at Revelation 12 to 15, where John is going to describe this woman and the dragon, as well as the beast and the bulls. We're going to talk about what it all means for our politics today. If you think about it, our politics today are actually driven by myths, the stories politicians tell us of our imagined future, which means our culture is shaped by stories of gods and heroes just as much as ancient stories were. Yet what if the story John tells us in Revelation 12 to 15 is the true story? And what if part of our calling to follow the politics of Jesus looks like proclaiming the good news of the true story to our friends, our communities, and to the world. Let's dive in. In the year 1949, an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College by the name of Joseph Campbell would release a book that would reshape Hollywood and the movie industry in the years to come. The book was titled The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and it held an intriguing premise. Campbell claimed that if one were to closely study a comparison of all the myths you find from vast and disconnected parts of the world, you discover that a similar archetype, a theme even emerges that connects all the myths to each other. In fact, the structure was so similar, Campbell called it the monomyth, and claimed that all myths inevitably trace the same journey for their heroes, thus his title, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. So the journey Campbell discovered goes something like this. The first stage is one of departure. Every hero begins in the ordinary world, when they receive some kind of call to adventure. Normally there's some sort of refusal to the call, then a culminating meeting with a mentor, and Campbell points out there's always a first crossing of the threshold. This is the first stage, the stage of departure where the hero leaves the ordinary world they started in. The second stage Campbell calls initiation and will involve what he describes as the road of trials. A quest at some point is embarked upon. There's some great temptation and then an even greater trial, typically facing some kind of death or descent. Campbell calls this moment the ultimate boon. And at this stage, it always culminates in some form of sacrifice or transformation that's required of our hero. Finally, in the third stage, there is the return or the road back. Often, this is where there's some bestowal of gifts or an elixir that offers healing to the community the hero is returning to. The hero, Campbell notes, is now master of two worlds, both the ordinary world they began in and the supernatural world where their trials took place. And now the hero miraculously combines these two worlds, bringing them home. This is what's fascinating about Campbell. He traced this narrative arc through hundreds of ancient myths. And over and over, for some reason, Campbell continued to discover that ancient people shared this similar journey. What Campbell began to believe was that perhaps the reason why such a similar story seemed to recur over and over and over again was that ancient people, as well as ourselves today, understood that some sort of trial, some sort of testing, some sort of journey would be required of each of us. When an ancient person would gather around the fire and begin to tell the tales of either Hercules or the myth of Prometheus or of Enuma Elish and Isis and Osiris, 
or perhaps even Homer's tales of the Odyssey and the Iliad. These stories were not simply meant to entertain, but were offered as a way to guide us in our own journey of how we felt we needed to live. They were our shared stories, stories that were actually defining and describing us to ourselves. In fact, Campbell, following Carl Jung, was suspicious that the reason we so deeply resonated with these stories, and the reason they were so often similar, was that in some ways these were the stories of what it meant to be human, to share in the heroic journey of departure, initiation, and return. Now, if Joseph Campbell is right, that begs a very important question. Why? Why do humans so deeply resonate with such a similar story? Why are we so moved and shaped by the need to depart our ordinary existence, be initiated into some grander world, and then inevitably, after facing great temptation and trial, perhaps even death itself, that we must return with some new gift to our home and to our families? We're going to return to this question. But if for some reason you're still skeptical about Joseph Campbell and his proposal of the hero's journey, I mentioned at the start Campbell would come to dominate Hollywood. In fact, in the 1970s, a young filmmaker by the name of George Lucas was beginning to ponder how to tell a deeper story that mythologized meaning to a postmodern, post-industrial West. This is a quote from George Lucas about the influence that Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces would have on his eventual trilogy of Star Wars. Here's what Lucas says. I came to the conclusion after American Graffiti that what's valuable for me is to set standards, not to show people the world the way it is. Around the period of this realization, it came to me that there really was no modern use of mythology. The Western was possibly the last generically American fairy tale, telling us about our values. And once the Western disappeared, nothing has ever taken its place. In literature, we were going off into science fiction, so that's where I started doing more strenuous research on fairy tales, folklore, and mythology and I started reading Joseph Campbell's books. Before that, I hadn't read any of his books, but it was eerie in reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces that I began to realize my first draft of Star Wars was following classic motifs. So I modified my next draft according to what I was learning about classical myths and made it a little bit more consistent. Fascinating that George Lucas, reading The Hero's Journey, understood the true story he was meant to tell that would subsequently resonate with generation upon generation. But of course, Joseph Campbell's influence didn't stop there. Christopher Vogler, a producer and screenwriter for Disney in the 1980s and 1990s, sent out what is now an infamous seven-page memo to the staff at Disney called The Practical Guide to the Hero with a Thousand Faces. Interestingly, that memo was sourced as the influence behind the creation of some of Disney's favorite and most beloved classics, such as Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, and ultimately, it was Christopher Vogler himself who would write the script for Lion King. Not only film, but also literature. Think of Joseph Campbell's influence on people like Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, Richard Adams, who wrote Watership Down, and of course, J.K. Rowling's and the Harry Potter series, all of whom have noted Campbell's significant influence on their thought. In fact, once you begin to see the monomyth, you see its traces everywhere. You can't escape it. Even as Hollywood attempts to experiment on its themes, always blockbusters will return, from Marvel movies to TV shows, from romantic comedies all the way down to deep dramas. Inevitably, you find a hero who departs from their ordinary world, is initiated into a grander adventure, and has some kind of return back to the world bearing new gifts that they've gathered with them from their journey. I bring all of this to your attention 
because myths are still alive and well in our world today. In fact, I would argue they continue to guide and shape how we understand ourselves. These are the stories we draw upon when we're in trouble. They're the stories that guide us when we're confused. They are the story each of us use to understand ourselves, even if we have differing opinions on who the villain is in our lives and what problems need to be overcome, where our departure and initiations need to take us before any of us can return home. All of us, though, are living some kind of story. The question simply becomes what story we believe we're living in. Which leads me to politics. If myths are powerful for personal guidance, they become even more powerful when it shapes our communal understanding of who together we believe ourselves to be. For that reason, all politicians are storytellers. All politicians are trying to offer you some compelling myth to join them in their party to inhabit the story they're telling you of your future. So let's take the Democratic Party as our first example. The Democratic Party has of course been shifting constantly and continues to shift today. But the story the Democratic Party would like to tell you is that they're the party of the people that cares for social concerns and wants to restrain big businesses and establish a true and just equitable society that looks something like universal health care, the erasing of college debt, a friendly and collaborative global policy that focuses on strong trade and economic ties and that allows us to still tax the wealthy, limit big business, upgrade police reform, and establish racial justice, supporting the vulnerable and advocating for the rights of minorities, especially from the LGBTQ community. Of course, when you hear the democratic story, it's compelling, even as it often neglects to address the tension points and inconsistencies. For example, such as Obama's mixed environmental legacy, Struggles in the Democratic Party to extract themselves from the Afghanistan war or mediate peace in the Middle East. A messy history of supporting the war on crime bills that dominated the 1980s. And the somewhat embarrassing fact that just as recently as 2010, most of the Democratic Party did not support gay marriage. Just to name a few. These concerns are often overpowered by design by the Democratic Party telling you the convincing and powerful myth of its vision of a just and equitable society. But if the Democratic Party has their myth, the Republican Party certainly also has their own. The story the Republican Party would like to tell is that the Constitution and the traditional values of the founding fathers of our great nation are under siege. The Republican Party is here to defend and support the family, the middle class, the hardworking and industrious, and American freedoms that are offered both here and abroad. Republicans defend the rights of the unborn, the rights to wield firearms, which I will say is one of the strangest political combinations in the history of thought, though of course this does somehow make sense in the mind of Republicans. All the way to freedoms for religion, freedoms for businesses, the Republican Party is all about that myth of freedom. Freedom that can be established by conserving traditional values. By creating a strong economy that supports American business, by funding a strong military presence that protects our great nation overseas, matched of course by strong borders that resist illegal immigration and minimizing tax policies that takes money away from hardworking Americans, America will flourish as the greatest nation on earth if the Republican Party can recover the great legacy handed down to us, from Lincoln to Reagan all the way of course to Trump and the present. Now, if the Democratic Party has hypocrisy and tensions, there are, of course, the many challenges to the Republican myth. Challenges of corporate corruption, sex scandals in the highest offices of power, 
all the way to the spread of blatantly slanted and at times disingenuous information through channels like Fox News, to the alarming ballooning of national debt and the growing disparity between the wealthiest 1% and the rest. Such hypocrisies pull and strain at an otherwise compelling story that the Republican Party attempts to put forward, one that Christians have often aligned with in the hopes of protecting their own religious freedoms and those strong traditional family values, even as Christians themselves struggle with the hypocrisy of the Republican Party's neglect of the poor, the refugee, the immigrant, just to name a few. Now, I'm not just here to pick on the Democrats or the Republicans. We could also talk about the myth of America in general. There's this one fascinating book I read, which was a survey of American preaching from the 17 and 1800s. And the book basically argued that preaching formed a cohesive myth in which Protestant individualism and responsibility, combined with rigorous Puritan morality, allowed for the story of American exceptionalism. The book traced how Christian preaching argued that America was the new Israel, in which our manifest destiny was to expand and claim the promised land of North America so that we could establish a Christian nation here on earth. So when the Louisiana Purchase became available, the myth was already secure. It was God's will to expand. The story was clear. Lewis and Clark are sent on an expedition to fulfill the great and glorious promises of God to expand and establish freedom across the world. You can, of course, still hear the echoes of that American exceptionalism in refrains from our national anthem and songs like America the Beautiful, and then reinforced after World War II by President Dwight Eisenhower, who incorporated the phrase one nation under God into the Pledge of Allegiance, a myth we repeated over and over and over again all the way through my elementary school days. Every day I would stand and recite that great and glorious myth that we were a people who stood for freedom, democracy, and all of our great nation established under God. There's a lot to unpack here, but my goal is more simple. We share an American myth, formed in the early days of our republic, packaged and repackaged by our politicians, who collectively formed and shaped the story we believe about ourselves. This is what politicians do. They tell us our story. This is actually what their politics are. It's storytelling. If you're a politician long enough, you will get caught changing your policies or shifting your agenda. But in some ways, it's inevitable because you're always searching for the most compelling story to give and shape how your constituents should live. What we're going to discover is that the early church John was writing to found themselves surrounded by myths of Roman politicians. One of the strongest, of course, was the myth of Caesar, also sometimes called the imperial cult, where ever since Julius Caesar, the ruler of Rome was said to be the son of a god and would call for citizens of Rome to offer sacrifices to themselves as lord and god if the people praised and worshipped the emperor as they were supposed to then the emperor would bring salvation through military might and establish what the emperor promised would be the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, that would spread all across the known world. How were Christians supposed to respond to such vast claims? How were Christians to navigate the politics of Caesar that were attempting to convey such a powerful story of hope and salvation by the work of Caesar's hand, proclaiming that in Caesar the peace of Rome would come? I'm turning now to Revelation 12, where after the upheaval of the judgment of the trumpets, 
that culminated in Revelation 11 with another scene of the saints worshiping God in heaven will now turn in a new vision to what John is going to call a sign. So this is Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, if you were reading this on your own, you would probably be confused. Up to now, John has offered visions of Jesus, letters to the seven churches, and the description of seals and trumpets as they interact with the heavenly throne. But something clearly different is now afoot. And John is trying to indicate it by telling us that this is a sign. The Greek word literally meaning a pointer or an indicator of the story that has been taking place. John is going to begin by describing a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. The passage continues in verse 2. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Okay, so now we discovered this woman is in fact pregnant. We're meant to be intrigued. Who is this woman? Like any great myth, our minds might be racing. The next verse makes us even more intrigued. This is now verses 3 to 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten thorns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now things are really getting interesting. This other sign that appears is a giant red dragon. In Greek culture, dragons were not winged creatures, but often depicted as giant serpents. In fact, in the Septuagint, the word dragon is used to describe the Leviathan, which in the Psalms is a giant creature of the sea, representing chaos that must be defeated by God. Yet John will note in just a few verses that though these images might come to mind, this dragon is in fact the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan and deceiver of the whole world. It's going to come in Revelation 12, verse 9. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. In John's day, there was this Egyptian myth of the sun god Isis who went to birth Horus, but who was sought out by the red dragon Typhoon. In order to escape, Isis fled to an island, and when her son Horus was born, he, Horus, would overthrow and slay Typhon. The story would be picked up by different characters in Greek mythology who called the dragon Python, the woman Leto, and the son Apollo, with the added twist that Leto was hid on the island by Poseidon. And eventually this myth would be borrowed by Rome, only with the goddess being intriguingly called Roma, and her son, who's hidden, becoming the first emperor of Rome and therefore the savior of the world. Here's where we return to the myth, yet note the interesting twist. This is a powerful story, one that would have been well known. Women, particularly the goddess woman, carried a great gift in her son. Yet like all pregnancies and birth, this gift would be costly to conceive and vulnerable when it was given. The woman or goddess in the myth experiences the threat, typified by a dragon but perhaps representing chaos or destruction or even power itself. Yet if her son could be born, then order and justice would be established for all. This story is in fact so powerful, so universal, that Egyptian, Greeks, and Romans intuitively got the truthfulness of this very message. In our days, this would be one of the blockbuster tropes, one of the powerful themes about how life works, how vulnerable birth and life were, and the kind of contest that would be required for new life to occur. However, the sign John depicts is clearly telling its own story. So notice in verse 5, John is going to veer in his own direction. This is what he says. She gave birth to a male child, 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. I love where John takes this. The storyteller in me loves this. Revelation has retold the pagan story. Revelation's point is that the child who everyone was anticipating is actually the child, the son of David, who's going to have this rod of iron, a beautiful allusion to the sweeping vision of Psalm 2, where God is preparing to enthrone the Davidic son and where God is calling all the nations who rebelled to fear him and kiss the ring of the son, lest God be angry. Notice, though, how the son in this story is caught up to God and his throne. I love that John is not avoiding the real drama, the real stakes. And there's something to be said about rereading the gospel accounts, the early days of Herod's murder of the innocents, and the sense in which the son was actually being caught up to the father. Yet even more intriguing is the description given to the woman, who we're told fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Your mind might want to rush to determining who this woman is, but stay with this contradiction for just a moment. The very scene of wilderness, a scene of barrenness, of desolation, is the site where God intends to offer nourishment, even a place we're told that God had prepared for the woman. Of course this woman is a sign, and thus I'm not sure we need to be rigid in our assignment of who this woman actually is. I think there's hints here of Eve, hints of Mary, and most certainly, perhaps most strongly, hints of Israel, in which the faithful remnant of God's people are the woman, whether these are present-day Israelites or the pressured and persecuted church who find themselves constantly fleeing the dragon to a place prepared for by God. Thus, these 1260 days, the total amount predicted in Daniel that would be a time of tribulation, is the time this woman finds herself in. Yet, the tribulation is not what defines this time, but rather the wilderness is in fact the scene of comfort, of intimacy, and nourishment that God had prepared for the woman all along. Yet, this myth is not over. Like any great myth, a battle ensues. The war needs to be fought. And so this is going to be verses 7 to 10. Here's what it says. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now we've managed to get quite a bit of information here that we've never had before, yet it's still far less than I think any of us want. Left simply to the storyteller's imagination, or with room for the details to be filled in, we're given a vision of Michael, the archangel, with his armies fighting against the dragon. Now the timing is particularly interesting. The sign John sees has Jesus caught up and ascend to the throne of heaven at his birth. And it would seem to be that very moment of Jesus' birth in which the devil is thrown down. Yet, as we're soon to discover, there's equal suggestion that it is perhaps the crucifixion, which is the moment that causes Satan's great demise in being cast out of heaven. Let's look at the next verse. This is verse 11 to 12. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The myth John is telling is abundantly clear. It is the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb that's conquered, and the word of their testimony, which of course is always a testimony about the Lamb and models what the Lamb has in fact done by offering the Lamb's life as an eternal sacrifice for us. Yet the focus of the myth is now going to shift from the vision of heaven to the ongoing activity of the devil. Thus we're warned, woe to you of earth and sea, because the devil is full of great wrath, because he knows that his time has come. Don't you feel this heightened sense of anticipation, even a dread and wonder? What is going to happen next in the saga that is unfolding before us? This is the power of myth. It pulls us into its story. It invites us to participate. It offers us real stakes, real threat, real contests that are in fact being played out every day before us, in the temptation to sin, in the cloud of despair, in the thick fogs of spiritual oppression that come to us in the form of cynicism, and in the dark recesses of abuse, or in the numb states of addiction, that culminates in the passive distractions of temporary and menial cares. This myth John is offering us is trying to remind us, wake up! Eternal stakes are playing out all around you. There is, in fact, a dragon who has been in great war with the angels of heaven. And you are the woman who finds yourself driven out, driven out from the possibility of creation and new life, driven into a wilderness of great trial and tribulation. And yet in this very wilderness, it is God himself who has prepared a place to nourish you. If only you will allow God to redirect you to the Lamb, the Lamb, not Caesar, who has accomplished salvation for the earth. This is the myth that Jesus invites us to tell. This is the myth that Jesus invites us to live, even as John is given these myths as signs to remind him in the trivial and menial distractions of our earthly existence. This is the true story taking place around us. Let's move on to Revelation 13 and the infamous vision of the beasts. This is from Revelation 13, 1 to 4. The story is going to take an interesting new turn. This is what Revelation 13, 1 to 4 says. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he has given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? If the mother and the dragon have a background myth that deepen its message, Revelation 13 is going to actually have two background myths that will be helpful in discerning its story. So the first background myth comes from Daniel 7 who talks about four beasts that culminate in a ten-horned beast that is fiercer than its predecessors. Most Jewish interpreters understood this to be a clear reference to Rome as the fourth beast who would rise out of the sea. John thus is confirming here that Rome as the beast 
is under the direction of the dragon who gave his power and his throne and his great authority to this beast. So it's possible that Rome itself is the great symbolic threat hanging over the church. There is, however, a second background image that's even more interesting, and it comes in the part where we're told a mortal wound that was healed had the whole earth marvel as they followed the beast. Most commentators think that Revelation is subtly giving a nod here to another myth being told around the time of John's writing about a former emperor of Rome, Emperor Nero. I talked in the first episode about some of the crazy-making political tactics of Domitian, who likely was emperor when Revelation was written, perhaps in the 90 ADs, who, through his own attempts at some pretty strong power grabs and building projects and rigid control of the Senate, and even his claim to be the moral authority of the land as censor, demanded that he, Domitian, be worshipped as god throughout the empire. But if Domitian is bad, he was nothing next to Emperor Nero, who ruled 30 years before in the 50s and 60s AD. So let me give you a little bit about Nero. Nero became emperor at the age of 16, and five years in would murder his mother, likely because she had been controlling his decisions. His first wife, married for power from a powerful family, would be divorced and executed. His second wife, the well-known beauty called Papea, would tragically die from complications in childbirth, though horrifically the rumor was that Nero, in a fit of rage, had kicked her in the stomach. This grief seemed to show when, after the death of Papea, Nero would castrate and marry a young boy named Sporus, who is said to resemble the beautiful Papea. After Sporus, Nero would hold another public marriage ceremony, this time to a former male slave, where Nero would dress himself as the bride and the slave was his groom. It was no wonder that over Nero's reign, the Senate was growing increasingly concerned about his eccentric and volatile behavior, and later Roman historians would look down with contempt and disdain upon his rule, his claims to artistic greatness, and his belief that he, of course, was the greatest emperor of all. However, strangely, or perhaps if we think about it, not that strangely, the populace seemed to love Nero. Perhaps it was his eccentric behavior, perhaps it was his commitment to the arts and to the games, or perhaps it was in his immense building projects and his claims about the glory of Rome and all of the free bread that he would give away, perhaps all combined to make the people think that he, Nero, was in fact a great and glorious god, and that they as a people were better off because they had Nero as their ruler. So what happens, you might ask, when a populist but power-grabbing and eccentric leader grows increasingly volatile? Inevitably, conflict was brewing with the Senate, and increasingly attempts would be made to overthrow him. Nero unfortunately made his crucial mistake when in 64 AD a fire started in Rome in the district of the city it was known Nero was hoping to rebuild. Nero would blame the Christians and would eventually offer us the terrible scene of Christians burned at the stake as retribution for their supposed start of a fire. It was around this same time that both Peter and Paul would be executed in Rome, likely under Nero's directions as an attempt to shift blame and restore public confidence in himself. But it never worked. The Senate now had the people's support. In 68 AD, with mounting debt and a Senate that though fearful now felt united enough to overthrow him, Nero would flee from Rome as an army was being marched to the city to forcibly expel him. On the outskirts of Rome, Nero would commit suicide, with one account saying he stabbed himself in the throat. However, here's the thing. His suicide was quite mysterious. 
Previous Roman emperors had had their bodies nobly led in a procession through the center of Rome, so all citizens could confirm their demise and affirm their offspring as the new emperor. But Nero's death, shrouded in mystery and followed by a year-long civil war as competing generals fought for the throne, caused many across the empire to speculate if Nero had, in fact, really died. In fact, this myth started growing so strong that by the time Revelation was written, already two imposters, both of whom were said to look like Nero, claimed to be Nero revived and brought back from the dead. Then, incredibly, a third claim occurred, this time 20 years after Nero's death, during the reign of Domitian, by an imposter who rallied the support of the Parthians and almost drove Rome and the Parthians to the brink of war. As late as St. Augustine, nearly 300 years later, this myth that maybe Nero hadn't died, and that maybe the people really did want Nero to return, was still circulating around the empire and was still causing Christians concern that maybe this, the Nero myth, was in fact the same one as this beast in Revelation 13, who would survive a wound to his head and lead an army from the east. Can you imagine the terror of being a Christian, living in this time as rumors abounded about a former emperor who was particularly known for persecuting Christians, possibly returning from the dead? Each of the three claims by three different impostors sent shockwaves across Christian communities, possibly even panic, as Christians had to wonder, with the claims circulating the empire, what will we do if Nero returns? With this background, the words of Revelation 13 verses 8 to 10 come into more stark and dramatic focus. This is what verses 8 to 10 says. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now these are stark words of a heavy myth, perhaps even a painful acknowledgement that the politics of Caesar are in fact outside of Christians' controls. Yet it is still a call to endure, even when the political climate gets wild, even when mortal wounds have not been mortal, even when demagogues do seem to have unlimited power and the populist support for crazy leaders is surging, the myth remains to remind Christians to endure in the face of the beast. Now, in Revelation 13, a second beast is going to be described in the following section. This is verses 11 to 12. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. Most commentators see the second beast as describing the imperial priesthood, a collection of priests across the empire and certainly located in each city the letters of Revelation are addressed to. These priests' sole responsibility was to promote worship of the emperor as a god, through organizing festivals, by dedicating banquets, and by accepting and rewarding those who offered consistent sacrifices, perhaps even being the eyes and ears for the emperor to promote and to support loyalty in each province and town. Right around when Revelation was written, Domitian had personally dedicated a 26-foot statue of himself in Ephesus in the imperial temple so that sacrifices and worship could be offered to his image. 
Revelation describes the second beast then performing great signs that facilitate worship of the first beast, and even giving breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. That's from verse 15. It wasn't uncommon in the Roman world for priests to go through this radical art of animating images to receive divine information. So it's likely in Ephesus and in other cities that Revelation was written to, the Christians there saw real and consistent practices of priests who were promoting radical signs for the support of emperor worship. The description of the second beast is going to culminate in every worshiper being marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one could buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Shortly after Revelation was written, a widespread persecution of Christians would break out because various emperors did in fact begin requiring certificates of worship. This was a tactic by Roman emperors to weed out Christians and those who wouldn't offer their loyalty to them. However, many Christians were then forced to decide because these certificates were required in order to trade or in order to buy and sell goods, whether they would forge certificates or accept the death that was waiting for them. Thus, while at times the myth of both beasts sounds fantastical, many of the Christians who did and would soon read John's word were faced with the very threats that Revelation 13 entails, threats that Christians have and continue to face all across the world. It would be one thing for John to spell all of this out. For instance, John could have said, hey, listen, watch out for the Nero pretenders and the priests who are going to be pressuring you into worshiping Caesar instead of worshiping Jesus. But John's myth is far more dynamic than that. It allows us, and the Christians it was written to, to inhabit it in an open-ended manner. Perhaps this is why the conclusion of chapter 13 has John saying this, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Now I know, inevitably, you can't do a series on Revelation without talking about this mysterious number 666. So here's what's going on. Some have suggested that there is a way, according to an ancient method of assigning numbers to letters in the Hebrew alphabet, to have 666 spell out Emperor Nero. That is perhaps as close as commentators can get to what John may have been referring to. And perhaps this is what John was in fact trying to say, a coded tip of the hat to the threat Christians should continue to fear of an emperor like Nero who would be revived and then persecute Christians. However, it's also been noted that symbolically, the number 666, repeated three times, emphasizes simply the incompleteness, with seven, of course, being the number of wholeness and completeness. That this number, 666, and its incompleteness is a number given to us to reassure us that the beast is incomplete and will, in fact, be defeated. Thus, John is assuring us here, though the powers of the two beasts may feel overwhelming, And though there is a vastness to the powers of Caesar, we will not, in fact, be defeated. The number of the beast is 666. There is nothing to fear. The beast will not conquer in the end. Perhaps this is why John's vision will quickly be followed in Revelation 14 by the steadying return of the myth of the Lamb, now this time described as being surrounded by 144,000 saints, standing almost as an army, singing a new song of redemption. This is Revelation 14.1. says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. I mean, you can almost picture the camera shifting 
from the horror and terrors of the beast, the mounting threats and suspicion as worshippers are being checked for a mark on their hand or forehead, to those now who stand, 144,000 strong, in the midst of the Lamb, and who instead of marked by the beast, have the Father and the Lamb's name written on their forehead. We're told in verse 2 to 3 that these saints are singing a new song. This is what it says. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on the harp, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I love this Exodus-type moment. It is the celebration of God's people singing the song of their redemption. This is the mythic moment of return, of hope, of the gift of the Lamb brought back for new life. This is what Jesus wants to offer the scattered saints across the empire, who even now can't help but wonder what Jesus makes of the politics of Caesar that lay claim to such unlimited power. Jesus instead is offering a vision of an even stronger force, singing an even stronger song that only the redeemed know. So I realize we've covered a large swath of text, and there's quite a lot here. In fact, much we haven't even unpacked. As with each episode, we have this great digital companion Bible study that walks chapter by chapter through Revelation and will allow you to slow down and ponder the significance of each story, each image, each myth. But for the close of this episode, I want to hold the myths together and ponder their significance for our politics today. Perhaps it's been concerning you as we've moved from the woman and the dragon to the two beasts to the saints that I've been referring to these visions as myths. Unfortunately today, the term myth has become somewhat derogatory. To call something a myth is to suggest it's somehow not true, or perhaps not even close to being real. A fabricated story of some kind that only naive ancients used to tell, but that we now today holds no real meaning or weight. I, however, would argue, as I've been doing all episode, that precisely the opposite is true. Myths are very much alive and very much real. They offer us a structure to our worldview. They guide our behaviors and beliefs. They shape our decisions and direct our stories. The problem occurs when we assume that just because a story is laden with symbols and imagery, it somehow is not true or not real. Increasingly, however, scholars and philosophers who ponder the significance of language, stories, and symbols have begun pointing out that contrary to our modern notions of concrete, descriptive, scientific language, there is actually a power to myth that is only possible through the images, through the symbols, and through the story that it conveys. The only question becomes, what we surfaced at the beginning of the episode, which myth is more true or more real? So when Democrats paint a myth of progressive utopian society, is that myth more real and more true than when Republicans paint their myth of a stable, flourishing nation of economic wealth, family values, and strong borders? We are drawn to ask not so much if myths are true, but which myth is true and which myth we should live by. Fascinating voice in discussion of myths is Dan McAdams, a professor of psychology at Northwestern University, who conducted a massive 15-year study of how the way people tell the stories of dramatic events in their lives shape the likelihood of their future success and recovery. So in his book, The Redemptive Self, Stories Americans Live By, he notes that all adults are generative storytellers. If you ask someone why they have the job they do, why they moved, or why they didn't get the promotion they wanted, the person will tell you a story. Yet what McAdams found that was fascinating was that the way a person related the story, 
particularly stories of challenges or setbacks, almost always indicated the results not only of the present they were living in, but the future that they would soon encounter. So McAdams found that if he asked someone how they experienced their high school days, if the person told a generative story in which their high school was a struggle, a great initiation, but which they achieved on the other end, a large amount of success and strength and deeper fortitude, then McAdams saw those people tended to find success in life even if their circumstance was incredibly hard. However, if upon asking someone how their childhood experiences shaped them, the person related deep disappointment, bitter shame, or some sort of immense failure that couldn't be overcome, then those people tended to struggle not just in the present, but the rest of their life. Of course, you could point out that this doesn't sound like rocket science. Perhaps it's because a person struggled that they now view their childhood so negatively. Or perhaps it's because a person experienced initial success that they now can tell positive stories. But McAdams' point is that it actually works both ways. How we tell the story, even to ourselves, seems to matter a great deal about the way we will make future decisions and the kind of future person that we will be and become. That is the power of generative storytelling. That, I would argue, is the power of myth. The story we're living in will influence the story we're going to live. The way we tell our own stories will influence where our stories will go. So then, what is the real myth? What is the true story, the best story by which we can live? C.S. Lewis, the 20th century Oxford Don, happened to be working on myths and literature around the same time as Joseph Campbell, and he too was deeply compelled by the power of myth to convey truth. But as C.S. Lewis was wrestling with his own atheism, he started to ponder what it would mean if Christianity was not just a myth, but the true myth. In fact, in a late-night conversation with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, Lewis discovered that the key to unlock the Christian faith for him was that Christianity was not simply one of the stories being told, but the true story being told, the true myths from which all other myths were drawn. This is how C.S. Lewis would put it. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference, that it really happened, and one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth, where the others are men's myths. These are the stories of God expressing himself through what we call real things. So his friend J.R.R. Tolkien would agree with him. In fact, I love this quote from Tolkien, who would later write on the power of myth to describe Christianity. This is what Tolkien said, The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, particularly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. Tolkien concludes, There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merit. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation itself. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. This whole episode has been about the power of myths to shape how we understand our meaning and thus our politics. Yet Christianity's boldness and the visions of John are so powerful precisely because they claim to be the myth, the true myth, Meaning in our lives is not determined simply by ourselves, as McAdams might argue, or by any political myth we encounter. Instead, meaning is meant to be determined by the true myth. 
taught to us through the beauty and challenge of the Christian scriptures, and internalized as we over and over ponder its story as our own story that's guiding our own behaviors, beliefs, and decisions. So each episode, I attempt to land revelation in the realm of political action, public actions we as Christians can offer for the good of our cities and communities. And this week, as simple as it sounds, I think is perhaps one of the most powerful. We, politically, need to become the most compelling storytellers in our communities. We need to be the ones who tell the story of the true myth. So quite simply, this looks like reading the story of Scripture together. There are some great resources here. Zondervan has put together a story Bible, which is a chronological, easy-to-read reformatting of the Bible that captures the imagination and heartbeat of a story. A friend of mine also recommended an experience he went through called the Community Bible Experience. You can search for it online, where you and several friends gather just once a week to read through and discuss the story of the Bible, book by book, broken into these accessible and easy-to-read formats. I've also heard of small groups that gather and each week have someone who's read the passage beforehand share from memory the story that they recall for the gathered community. It's incredible to hear how these practices invite us to internalize the scriptures, to inhabit the true myth, and let the stories of scripture play on our mind, touch our hearts, and affect our decisions. Where this gets public is when we begin to tell the story to others. On a personal level, storytelling looks like telling Bible myths to friends, coworkers, and families. It could even look like a dramatic reading or performance of scripture. Or it could be as simple as you sharing stories from the Bible when you reflect on politics. I realize this is one of those open-ended practices, yet I can't help but wonder. We all are listening to stories all the time. We all are telling stories all the time. In this previous election cycle, I have over and over heard the stories told of the promises and failures of both parties and both politicians. It's so easy for us to get removed from the story, the true story, the true myth we have in Jesus Christ. The story of the woman comforted and nourished in the wilderness. The story of the lamb standing with the redeemed against the power of the beast. Or the story of the song we will all one day sing, a song of God's victory and might and redemption. It is not Caesar who will establish peace on earth, but God. May we live this story. May we trust the truth of this vision. And may we become storytellers who share these stories with any and all for the good of our communities and cities. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.